0: Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, the host of Talking Apes. I'm delighted to announce a new feature on Talking Apes called In the Spotlight. The In the Spotlight series will highlight a collection of past podcasts with new blogs, updates, and photos to shine a light on a critical issue we think deserves to be in the spotlight now. The In the Spotlight series is found exclusively on our website at TalkingApes.org. We're launching the inaugural In the Spotlight with a look at orangutans. Mid-November each year, we celebrate Orangutan Caring Week. Because orangutan populations are still at risk, and the work of sanctuaries and rescue centers across Borneo and Sumatra continues to be the vital bridge to orangutan survival. Here's our original podcast with OVAID's founder and lead veterinarian, Nigel Higgs. We first aired the podcast back in August of 2021. Since then, OVET has been delivering a non-stop flow of critical resources. Hundreds of kilos of veterinarian supplies, including x-ray generators and dental systems, to orangutan vets and sanctuaries on the front line of the struggle to save all three species of critically endangered red apes. And now, my conversation with Nigel Hicks, featuring orangutans in the spotlight. <laughs> That is one of the most amazing sounds in all of the world. I mean, not just the natural world, but everywhere in my mind. What you've just been listening to is a very large male orangutan making a long call. That call can stretch out over minutes and can be heard for a couple of kilometers away in the forest. It's an amazing piece of communication by one of the most intelligent apes on Earth. But what this red ape can't communicate is its need for medical help. And that's where my next guest comes in. Medical care to one of the world's most intelligent apes is both science and art, and the unique skill of a few specialized veterinarians. As the rainforests of Borneo and Sumatra have been felled and burned, the number of injured orangutans has increased dramatically, flooding rescue centers and often overwhelming the veterinarian's staff and resources. Joining us this time is one of those specialized veterinarians, the British orangutan vet, Nigel Hicks. A decade ago, Nigel decided to leave the predictable world of veterinarian medicine in the UK, and he ventured into the unknowns of wild orangutan care a half a world away on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. His experiences and the need he and his partner Sarah saw inspired them to launch OVADE, the British charity orangutan veterinarian aid OVAID provides veterinary equipment, medicines, and assistance to orangutan rescue groups and centers across Indonesia and Malaysia. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at g l o b i o org. Welcome Nigel, it's really great to have you with us. It's been a long time.
1: It's it's great to catch up. We seem to have missed each other each time, recently that we've traveled to Indonesia, so uh, it's it's great to catch up this way at least anyway.
0: We first met, you were uh, working at um, one of the sanctuaries in the Malaysian side of Borneo with orangutans, and you were out there on a platform. And um, that reminded me of something that I read on the Ovid uh, website, which was... um, something if plan a doesn't work there's 25 more letters in the alphabet and and i saw you out there working on that platform and it looked like you were kind of making up plan a and b as you were going as the orangutans were coming and going on the platform what what does that what does that mean in your mind that there's 25 other letters in the alphabet
1: well that's a really great starter question jerry uh I have to say I'm 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 sorry that I was um, so superficial that it was obvious I was making everything up as I as I went along. I thought I was I was getting a little better than that, but obviously I'm, I still need to improve. Uh, well, Nigel Hicks, but, welcome but to Talking Apes. It's it's interesting. I think sort of as, as vets we we're trained to work across species and we're trained to think outside the box a little bit, and it really is. Necessary to do so. When, when all this started back in, in 2009, now, uh, and I was offered the, the position as, a, as an orangutan vet, my first question was actually, you know, have you got the right chap here? Um, you know, am I actually qualified to, to do this job? And I was told by a wildlife vet that I spoke to that, uh, that, that being a large animal vet, if I was used to turning up on a farm with with all of my resources in the in the trunk of my car, as you would call it. Uh, and be faced with pretty well any case that the, the farmer threw at me and i I could successfully complete it then i'd be fine as a as a wildlife vet because you simply have to think outside the box you have to think on your feet and you and you also have to sort of utilize everything that's available to you and I, and I think perhaps doctors are perhaps a little bit more rigid with their discipline i don't mean that in any derogatory way. I think they'll very often sort of easily dismiss a situation as unworkable. So I, I, I often think if you asked a doctor to, uh, to perform a caesarean section in, the, in a stable on a dirty farmyard with limited light and one bucket of hot water, he would just say that's impossible and not even attempt it. Um, but vets do it all the time. Uh, and the Indonesian vets are extremely resourceful. These Indonesian guys are dedicated, they're often working with little equipment, poor facilities, sort of outdated medicines. So very often what they would like to treat an animal with their plan A is just not available. Um, and you don't have a lot of time. So you go to plan B and if plan B doesn't work, then I guess you go to to plan C. So it's sort of more or less natural.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's maybe because, um, vets in places like Indonesia, they, uh, they grow up not even knowing plan A, um, you know, they, they're already starting at plan C or D. I mean, just because of the circumstances and the place that they are. So what we would think of as or or you as a vet might think of in, in a place like the UK or the United States as plan A, that's just not even presented as an initial option.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a really valid point. Um, and very often it is the case. Uh, you know, they're working in some difficult conditions. So you know, whilst we might plan to do a surgery in a certain way they this, it's impossible for them, so they they're some way down that line already uh, and, and all credit to them because they seem to cope with it sort of amazingly well um, but I guess that's the you know so that's the sort of the the idea you know you, if, if plan A isn't working, don't be phased; you just simply go to go to the next one and, and interestingly, when I started working out there, I found it. Really cathartic and quite satisfying to working from from first principles medicine um, without any reliance. Sometimes on sort of t- technology, it can be frustrating, but but it's really rewarding when it works because uh, you really feel you've achieved something and you've you've mastered the ability to move quickly from from one thing to the next and get the job done.
0: I yeah, I was I was going to ask you how orangutans were. Uh, different from all other great apes including humans but uh, it sounds like you you didn't have a lot of primate or especially great ape um background coming into it when you you started with orangutans you were working primarily as a a vet with domestic uh livestock and and dogs and cats and that kind of thing or did you have some some prior great ape experience
1: no you're you're absolutely right i have to confess that that yeah, I hadn't worked with primates at all before sort of 2009. And my experience had been, I mean, quite a bit of, of many years, too many years of veterinary experience, I guess, as you say, with domestic animals and uh, and a lot of large animal work as well. Um, but I haven't worked with, with primates before. And it, it sort of fazed me at first because I was really sort of concerned that, that I wasn't going to be up to the job or I wasn't sort of capable of, of adapting easily enough. But it's... It's surprising because a lot of the treatments that we we use for great apes can sort of stem from um, from first principle medicine. So, in other words, so the you know an orangutan comes in with a, a nasty wound, well, you're going to treat it in much the same way as a human would be treated or a dog would be treated. Um, so, th- there was a rapid learning curve. Um, mm-hmm. I always remember when we arrived at that centre in Malaysia first, I was supposed to have a uh, sort of a couple of day handover with the, the vet that was there. And, and I sort of approached it really confidently. I thought, this is great, uh, have a couple of days handover, I'll sort of get into the swing of things and we'll be fine. Um, and then, much to our surprise, uh, once we got there, I think probably within about half an hour of being shown in the clinic and the basic principles, the vet just said, well, I'm off now. I'll see you in about three weeks' time. Uh, and uh, Sarah and my wife went into complete panic, uh, thinking that we were going to decimate the, uh, the, the uh, critically endangered orangutan population in Malaysia. Um, and I was sort of like, well, no, we'll be fine. Uh, we'll just go to plan B or plan C or plan D if we need to. Um, but And it's a question I'm often asked now, actually, by you know, with a lot more experience now. So a lot of sort of veterinary graduates sort of approach us and say, well, you know, what do I need to do to get into wildlife medicine? You know, must I do a master's degree? Must I uh, you know, do a specialist degree before I can even consider it? And, and what I actually say to them is, "Is no, you know, give it a little bit of time. But what you need is some good sound uh, veterinary medical and surgical experience. And that will stand you in, in good stead. You have to... Obviously, be able to learn the the intricacies of tropical medicine, etc. Um, but a lot of the treatment, you know, will come from first principle medicine. So, so if you're adaptable, then it's it's fine, and it and it works quite well.
0: Hmm. So, uh, so I will ask my original question. then. what? How how is it that orangutans differ from? Other great apes and from us. I mean, what what was the first thing that kind of surprised you or kind of caught you um, that you said, "Okay, this is a little different than anything I've worked with."
1: Okay, I, I I think first of all, a lot of people are surprised at the size of the orangutan. Uh, they're often they're, they're sort of much smaller than, than people imagine. They're bigger than chimps but smaller than gorillas. And I think people expect a a bigger animal, a wild orangutan is a fairly lean um but but quite athletic sort of creature i I think perhaps the first thing that hits you is the the tremendous muscle power they have and the strength that that orangutan have and it's not until an orangutan grabs you by the arm for the first time that you suddenly get that realization that that this orangutan has got you by the arm and you're not getting out of it unless that orangutan decides he's going to let you go um So you suddenly are faced with this animal of perhaps even a little smaller than you, but which has about six or seven times the the strength. Uh, And that can present a real sort of real challenge. You you do have to be careful. I mean, generally, they're they're sort of gentle creatures. But, you know, they can get angry if you are trying to do something to them that they don't like. So I think probably sort of strength, uh, the fact that they are incredibly... uh, Incredibly sort of uh, forceful animals if they, if they want to be and I think the other thing that obviously strikes everybody is that is that sort of level of intelligence uh, that they come with these are really clever pre creatures uh, you know and I always sort of say you, know, you, you sort of look into the eyes of an orangutan and you can see the cogs turning there um, they they will play tricks on you uh, they're fantastic creatures to work with um, but they are great sort of Problem solvers—they're intelligent animals. I, I think, as I say, I haven't had a great experience with with a lot of the other apes, but but for me, the orangutan really is a very very sort of clever animal. Um, I've seen them working pairs together to sort of bend branches to, to escape over a wall. I've seen them pick up sticks and use as walking poles to work their way through uh, through um, a moat around an island. Um, and I think that's where perhaps they, they differ from other great, great apes. There's, there's the classic sort of phrase, isn't there, you know, where they say that if you give a chimpanzee a screwdriver, uh, he'll just throw it back at you and try and kill you. If you give a gorilla a screwdriver, he'll probably just scratch himself with it. But if you give the orangutan a screwdriver, he'll sit there and he'll just open up his cage and walk away. And I think that sort of sums it up. It's, it's that really sort of clever intelligence and tenacity that they
0: that they seem to have um so does that become a challenge when you're trying to do the work you're trying to do as a vet i mean obviously if you've got to do some kind of medical procedure on them you've got to knock them down and you know you've got to sedate them but where where does that intelligence at what point does that become a challenge to you as as a vet in trying to work with them
1: uh, quite quickly, I, I should say. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, as I say, on the whole, they're gentle creatures. Um, but, you know, they, they will bite and they are very strong. If uh, so, so certainly, you know, an orangutan of maybe sort of like four or five, six years old is going to become unhandleable in that in that sense of the word. Um, so you, you have to dart them um, to to perform any sort of examination and they are really clever i mean i've, I've seen an orangutan um, whip a dart out of its backside after it's just been darted and and throw it with force straight back at the darter. so you know so so you almost you need to hide the dart gun if you're going to approach them because they'll remember um and you need to get out of the way as well once you've once you've done it um so so they're very clever. They're very clever at um, not taking medicine. You know, if you talk to any sort of vet who's tried to give an orangutan medicine that it doesn't want, um, then they are really sort of, really, really a pain sometimes to, to try and figure out how you're going to get that medicine in. Um, and I think the other thing perhaps that, that is a real sort of challenge, and it's not related necessarily directly to their intelligence, but um, they are masters at, masking signs and symptoms and that's a real challenge for for any vet yeah they i I, it's it's the natural sort of fear flight adrenaline you know stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system i guess but obviously they're they're a wild animal and in the wild um if you exhibit signs of illness or weakness then you're going to be predated and although the orangutan doesn't have that many predators predators it still does um So if an orangutan looks sick, then that orangutan is very sick, and you need to do something very sort of quickly. And I think that's something always to bear in mind. I remember when we were working in uh, in Sumatra in 2016, we we had a big male orangutan brought in uh, by the rescue team, and he'd been speared into his spine, leaving an infected wound in the spine. Uh, He'd broken a couple of fingers. He'd lost one finger. He had broken rib. And he'd been shot, and that orangutan was still evading capture. He just wasn't going to give up. He was going. We had another one that had been that, that looked absolutely normal when it was brought in by the rescue team, and when we x-rayed it, it had sixty-six. It had been shot sixty-six times, um, but it was showing no real sort of clinical signs of that. So that's a real challenge, I think, to to, to anybody sort of dealing with them. Um, and as I say, they they are just so sort of very clever. So because once you perform the procedure, then you know you still have potential problems. Uh, remember we had a an orangutan that we operated on for um, an air sacculitis. So the orangutan has this, this great big sort of air sac, which you know, Jerry, which the, the male uses to make the long call. It covers most of the most of the chest, and they sometimes can get infected. And the the only way to to treat them can be to operate and um, actually, make a hole in into the through the skin and into that air sac, and and to create a fistula so that the hole stays in a drainage. Uh, we operated on this orangutan, and we were actually really just sort of patting each other on the back, thinking that our technique was pretty good. Um, but what we'd forgotten was that the orangutan obviously realised it had a hole, and it decided it was going to keep its peanuts in this hole, which really didn't give <laughs> surgery a lot of good. Um, so that, that's typical. They'll, they'll come up with these things that you don't think of. Taking stitches out for a pastime, you know, any, any sort of surgery, afterwards they'll try and take stitches out. So that's a challenge for the vet. So we use all sorts of uh, of, of distraction techniques. I mean, we, we often use buried sutures where we can, but that's not always possible. So so we try all sorts of things to, to fool them into not picking their wound open. So we'll put false... Stitches in, for example, you know. So let's say the wounds in the abdomen. We'll put a few stitches in the arm, so that when the orangutan wakes up, it sees those and it starts picking away at those rather than perhaps having a go at the uh, at the surgical incision. And uh, and painting fingers and toenails is is uh, a great idea. Sarah likes that one as well. So uh, the the girls will often um, paint their fingers and toenails with uh, with any sort of uh, any. Uh, Uh, makeup that they've got handy the gaudier the color the better so that when the orangutan wakes up it sort of looks at hands and thinks my god what the devil is this on my hands and sits there looking at that and and hopefully avoids opening up your wing so i mean it's it it sounds quite amusing but it, it, it is a real challenge
0: That, that is not something I thought we were going to end up talking about is painting (laughs) orangutan toenails and fingernails. Um, but no, but, but that is, I mean, they are so amazingly intelligent and you know, that, that was, you know, one of my, one of the questions that I had for you was, yeah. My experience with orangutans in both Borneo and Sumatra has been that you, you seem to either have these, uh, Rescues that can never go back into the wild, or you have these rescues that you're trying to get back into the wild. And, um, ideally it's a rescue that you, you patch them up and you get them back into the wild as quickly as possible. And they spend the least amount of time in any kind of captive situation. Um, but others um, have to spend you know, a prolonged period of time in, in captivity until the wound, either the wounds heal or there's a suitable release site or something. So how do you see those? Do you see those as kind of two different um, challenges? the The orangutans that have to be decided upon that they can't go back into the wild versus the ones that you're going to try to put back. I mean, do you approach those in any way differently as, as a vet and working with the teams there?
1: Yeah, I, yes, you would, Jerry. I think, I mean, you know, unfortunately the unreleasables are perhaps the saddest part of the of the rescue centers that, that we see. Uh, and those are the orangutan that are not going back to the wild for, for various reasons. That can be, you know, due to an injury. Um, it, it can be as a result of being perhaps kept as a pet for far too long and being unable to... Uh, uh, you then adapt to going back to the forest uh, it can be because they're suffering from a disease you know tuberculosis and, and hepatitis are the two that perhaps we worry about mostly and certainly um you know unfortunately in orangutan tuberculosis is extremely difficult to to treat and and we think is probably almost impossible to to eradicate so those animals are unfortunately going to remain as, as unreleasables um and you're, yep, you're quite right, Jerry. Those are those are the, the saddest ones that that we see in the centres. But it, I think it does mean that you 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 can treat them differently. So orangutan that are going to go through the rehab process and are going to be released, really, you you just don't want to habituate. You want them to have as little human contact as possible. I don't think it matters too much in young babies um, that have sort of lost their mother. You know, as we know, orangutans would be with their mother until they're sort of six or seven years old. And the first couple of years, they literally are being carried around by their mum. So those young orangutans that come in the centre, even if those we think are going to have potential for release, I think I don't see it. It's too much of a problem if they get a lot of love and care and attention from from the nurses. Um, but then as they start to work through the rehab process, they need to be habituated Uh, less and less and less so certainly as as vets any procedures that we would do we try and minimize they have to have a quarantine period of three months when they come into the center Um, but after that you know we would try and perform as uh, as many of the veterinary procedures that have to be done uh, as quickly as possible to get them back in the rehab process um, and as we sort of mentioned, that, that can present challenges. The ones that are not going back to the wild need a different type of attention, I think. You know, so, so certainly in terms of providing them with enrichment and so on, that's much more of a complicated process. Um, but also, if they're not going to go back to the wild, then habituation is not really so much of a problem. So I see nothing wrong with an animal which unfortunately can't be released back to the wild getting more attention. Uh, and and making its life better and its welfare better. Um, and it's certainly with so, some of the centres now are sort of starting to use some of the techniques that are used in, um, in zoos worldwide um, to enable them to be treated much easier. So you can have things like, you know, presenting themselves for examination, presenting themselves for injection, for blood draws and so on, without the need necessarily to to have to, the trauma of darting and so on. Um, and and some of these sort of zookeepers are, are very good at this sort of training and, and, and achieve sort of good results. And they're passing that on to, to some of these centres now so that they're able to do that. Um, so that's, I think, much less traumatic for these poor animals that are unfortunately kept in, in cages most of the time. Uh, and having to stay in the centers for a long time so so certainly from a from a veterinary point of view, we would approach those slightly differently the the ones that are going back for release, they just need to get into the rehab process and and hopefully move back towards that release
0: as soon as possible i I was curious you mentioned uh, tuberculosis tB um is it is there a specific kind of TB for orangutans or is it is it uh the same um, TB that you and I would fall victim to? No, it's,
1: it's, it's the same. It's the same TB. Uh, there's not been a lot of research obviously done on wild orangutan, but we suspect that in fact TB is, is not that prevalent in wild orangutan if at all. Um, so the TB that we tend to see is, is probably simply as a result of orangutan coming into close contact with, with humans. And TB is an endemic in, uh, in Indonesia um it's, it's notoriously difficult to, to diagnose successfully and accurately uh, and probably even more difficult to, to treat. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we have the three-month quarantine when animals come into the centre, because the, the most satisfactory way of, of diagnosing tuberculosis um, is really from a, a sputum sample. Uh, and It's pretty difficult to get an orangutan to, uh, to spit into a little pot Uh, on demand. So uh, obviously they have to be sedated. um, And then we would take a sample um, from down in the in the trachea from towards the lungs. And that's sent off to a lab. But that takes three months uh, of culturing before you you could get a result. Uh, There are other tests, you know, we we x-ray as well, we do some superficial skin tests. uh, And you can do a PCR test as well, um, in the laboratory but the most accurate test is uh, is the is the culture test um, so these these animals are having to wait three months in quarantine for that test and then if they come positive um, they they need lengthy protracted treatment sometimes over a number of years and they need to be isolated away from from all the rest of the animals in the center so logistically they present a problem um, and it, it's as I say it's one of the worst. Diseases that that we always sort of fear can can get in because of the risk of spreading to the other orangutan and and even you know, obviously to, to to keepers as well.
0: Yeah, I I I mean that's something that that has been on my mind a lot uh, in working uh, in in Borneo and Sumatra is the spread of disease. It seems like we know um, we I, th- I think we know a lot more about and we don't know a lot but we know a lot more about the impact on chimpanzees and and gorillas I think um just because of the the longevity in which people have been working with those two animals in Africa but it seems from what i've heard talking to to folks running centers talking to other vets that the what we know about disease in orangutans is is much more limited and especially when it comes to wild uh, orangutans which brings brings up a couple of questions I guess I wanted to ask you about one is covid and we'll we'll touch on that in just a second but you know it, over the last, uh, especially the last five or six years, the fires um, that have ravaged, it seems like, um, Borneo and Sumatra often and on, um, these really horrendous fires. And I was there in 2015 when, you know, it just devastated much of Borneo. Um, and there were there were thousands of humans who were suffering from respiratory uh, infections and um you know, inhalation of this toxic mix of smoke, which had methane's and ozones and all kinds of things in it. And I asked a number of people about what what was the impact on orangutans, and and basically nobody knew. And I mean, it's a really obviously a difficult thing to do. But have you seen in the work that you've been doing there? Have you seen any problems, growing problems with respiratory disease, and you know, impact from things like these fires?
1: Yeah, I I would say yes, Jerry. Uh, And as you say, I mean, those annual fires are certainly horrendous. We do witness them firsthand. We were there in in 2015 as well when they were particularly bad. In in fact, Sarah, my wife, she was there for a more protracted period than me, and she suffered residual respiratory problems for for several months. Uh, And, yeah, you're right, those those fires are frightening. I remember we were in Katapang and... uh, We could see the fires approaching the centre. You could hear the crackle of the flames and you could see whole trees just erupting up into flames and smoke everywhere, smoke everywhere. You know, you couldn't, we didn't see the sun for about three months and that's not really an exaggeration. Um, So, uh, and the impact on the human population was sort of very evident quite quickly. Surprisingly, the impact on the orangutan at the centre was nowhere near as severe as we had expected uh, we you know we were all wearing masks we we were expecting the orangutan to be coming into the clinic sort of one after another and and actually we didn't really see that we did see some respiratory problems but almost less perhaps than that was being seen in the human population so I don't know whether the orangutan in some way uh, seem to be able to cope with it, which is really surprising to me because respiratory problems in orangutan are, are the worst. Um, you know, they are a real sort of – they're a real problem. Um, so you would expect that the the fires would you – know, if they're causing problems in humans, they're going to cause horrendous problems in the orangutan. But having said that, I, I know certainly that the boss centre at Naira Mentang um, – has, has looked at it sort of very carefully and, and again I think they also agreed that they have some respiratory problems in the in the acute fires but they actually started recording an increase in respiratory symptoms maybe 12 months or longer after the severest fires um, which is quite worrying because if if the signs were not evident until the following year well then perhaps it indicates that the fires precipitate perhaps a more chronic than an acute, Syndrome in the orangutan. Uh, this is really anecdotal. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking from a, a true uh, sort of like scientific research basis, but this is certainly my impression, and it worries me because it could mean, in that case, that that wild orangutans obviously are left with long term problems. And as you say, Jerry, there's very little research which has been able to be done on on wild orangutan. Um, but certainly, the Boss Centre at Naira Mantang, um we're very convinced that that. They were having some sort of chronic problems in in their orangutans. So uh, I think we, you know, with the ongoing fires sort of year after year, unfortunately, we may not have seen the end of the problems uh, for for orangutan in that respect.
0: Yeah, I just it it is something that (coughs) excuse me, it's something that I guess it was on my mind just because I know that with in the case of chimps and gorillas in places uh, like the Virungas in Uganda, that respiratory disease has been one of the one of the few killers um, when they've lost groups there. And there's just been so little done around orangutans. I just, you wonder how mu- how many orangutans ended up dying. But it's interesting that you should mention it being a more long-term or chronic thing. Um, and it, it sounds like a fascinating PhD for somebody if you could figure out how to do it. I mean, obviously, just seeing orangutans in the wild is a challenge, but uh, to, yeah, to try it, to track them and then get some sense of their respiratory condition would be even even more a challenge.
1: Yeah, that's true. But it it would make a, a great project if it was if it was feasible. So uh, it, it's out there if somebody wants to have a go. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of diseases that uh, that like TB that can jump from human to, uh, orangutan. What, what's going on? I, the Delta var, variant is running kind of crazy in Indonesia right now. And it's, I know that, um, the latest, uh, statistics that I had seen, um, this being August of 2021, it's showing that the Delta variant is, is running rampant in, Indonesia is second only to India in terms of um, infections in that part of the world. What, what's going on with orangutan? I mean, has anybody had a chance to look at that at all? I mean, wh- I, we know that COVID is in some of the centers. Um, we've got news the other day that actually somebody in one of the research centers had died of COVID. And I know they're taking every precaution under the, under the sun to try to, you know, Prevent the spread there, but what's what's your thoughts on on COVID, the variants, and orangutans?
1: It, it is really worrying. Uh, I mean, COVID's affected every one of our lives, and and there's, there has been a huge impact. Certainly, as you say, in, in Sumatra, just recently, uh, they seem to be having uh, having a worse time than than, than we've had. Uh, I think I saw the other day that there were. Uh, more cases and more deaths in Indonesia. They were sort of unfortunately topping the, the charts at the moment. So, um, I mean, luckily at the moment, there has been no report of, of um, sars cov in orangutans. Uh, and I think that's a credit to to the, the staff of all the centres out there. Um, as soon as the pandemic sort of hit, uh, the centres sort of made impact assessments and, and quickly put sort of existing disaster relief plans into operation. So, the centres were effectively sort of closed down to everybody except essential workers, uh, and they made the, the sensible decision of splitting keepers and vets into separate teams, so that if a if any member of the team became positive, that team could be withdrawn and replaced with a with a healthy team. This meant long hours for the vets and produced some headaches for management, but. Um, it it does seem to be effective, so they they they've done a great job. Uh, I think a major complication is that there are no specific tests for SARS-CoVid in orangutan. Um, the human sort of lateral flow antigen tests are of, as we know, are of sort of variable efficiency in humans, and and they're completely unproven in orangutan. Um, PCR remains probably the most accurate test, but not all centres you have access to this or, or they've not been able to get samples tested because of the pressure on the labs from, um, from, from human testing naturally enough. Um, so it's, it is of great concern. Um, we know that orangutan are susceptible. Um, we know that they have the same uh, sort of ACE2 receptors that, uh, that we humans have, uh, which enables the, the virus to, uh, to attack the cells. So we we can only assume that that if COVID did enter, it could actually sort of decimate the population. I know Sabine so Singleton has been really sort of worried uh, in Sumatra with their lower number of, of orangutans. Um, so it, it has caused great concern. Um, the centres have done sort of a really good job under sort of difficult circumstances, um, but it 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 has met all sorts of sorts of problems. There, a lot of the centres reported trouble obtaining sort of. PPE at the start of the pandemic, they, they just couldn't get it or it was extremely expensive. Some of them were having problems with um, food supplies for the orangutan, especially when there were local lockdowns. Um, so it, it has been sort of really sort of complicated, but the teams have done a really good job. Um, and I know for a fact, so speaking to, to some of the vets, that, that uh, some of the teams have you know, from time to time tested positive for, for COVID within the centres. And that's presented the vets with a bit of a problem because you know how much contact should you have with the orangutan in your centre if you've got COVID floating around in the in your keepers as well. So um, it's been a really tricky time, but so far they've they've been lucky, um, and the the measures are in place and are remaining in place. There's no sign at the moment of any of the centres relaxing those. So I, I I guess we have to keep our fingers crossed, but. Um, I think you'd have to assume that with orangutans having that sort of sensitive respiratory system being susceptible to, to any sort of human respiratory problem, um, COVID could be a major, major problem if it if it did get into the centers. So, so far, we're keeping our fingers crossed.
0: Yeah, I, not to complicate it, but just coming off of the last thing we were talking about, which was the, the... – the impact of the fires and the, and the chronic nature of what that could be doing to your lungs. I mean, one of the things that we do know about COVID is it, if you have underlying conditions, it, you are more susceptible to the impacts of it. Um, and so that obviously spins in my head. What about these orangutans that are out there that may have some ongoing respiratory problem from, from one situation, the fires and, and, and then if something like a COVID should get into any of the wild populations, do you just amplify the the problem? I mean, questions none of us know the answer to, obviously, but...
1: It's, it's, it, it is it is a good point. You know, we, we know very little about um, about orangutans' immunity to, to COVID. You know, we're just assuming that they are susceptible because of those sort of ACT receptors. Um, and we perhaps have to assume that that the symptoms and the syndrome would be similar to to the scenario in humans. Uh, I mean, interestingly, uh, there's sort of um, last year, San Diego Zoo uh, or San Diego Wildlife uh, Park had a problem in their gorillas uh, uh, where they tested positive for for sort of COVID. Most of them. Um, showed the same sort of gradation, I think, of symptoms as as we've seen in humans. It was only a very small uh, number, uh, maybe just like half a dozen, I think. But I think the younger ones seemed uh, to be able to cope with the disease better. The older ones showed slightly more severe sort of symptoms. They all recovered um, and they were sort of fine. But I, I agree with you, Jerry. It, it Does sort of concern me. You know, we we don't even know whether long COVID is a possibility. If um, you know, if the if the um, orangutans did sort of suffer from sort of the COVID infection, Uh, it's sort of guesswork. Uh, Nobody really knows, but we have to keep our fingers crossed.
0: I guess disease uh, is an issue for for me. I mean, I'm fascinated by disease in general. I always have been, and uh, but I, I think it's when it comes to great apes and primates especially it, we when we look at the threats to great apes in the wild, it's really easy to to point your finger at the obvious things the things you, you can see palm oil you know there's giant plantations or wiping out a rainforest um, you know it's a mining or a dam in in some place uh, whether it's Africa or it's in Southeast Asia but disease is that as um, uh, one one health person who you might know, Billy Karish, who works for uh, one uh, eco health, one of the things he said to me a long time ago was he said, You know, diseases, sort of the, especially zoonotic diseases, are sort of the silent killer that we just don't know about. And he said, With Populations becoming more compacted uh, because losing wild habitat, they're they're pushed into denser and denser situations or just smaller numbers and isolated numbers like you're getting with some of the primates. All it takes is a disease to sweep through there and wipe out that whole population or, you know, a, a large number of, of those animals. And the same thing is happening with orangutans in Borneo and Bornean Sumatra. I mean, they're in such isolated you know patches. I mean, just look at the Tapanuli. You know, it was only discovered a couple of years ago that, you know, it's uh, its own species, and yet it was immediately put on. It was the most endangered great ape instantly with only about what 600 or something of them. So it wouldn't take much of a disease to sweep through and wipe out 600 animals or at least the, you know, the, the majority of the viable population there. So, um, Disease has, it just seems to be the sort of silent killer out there that I am worried about when it comes to apes.
1: Yeah, I think I, I would agree with you. I think and that's probably a good, good expression, actually, the the, the silent killer. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of eco health. We worked with eco health back in um, 2012 in Malaysia, um, and eco health were actually sampling wildlife um, in the centre and around the centre. Um, in an effort to try and predict when the next pandemic uh, might might when it might be and where it might stem from. Uh, Slightly ironic now. Um, But they I I remember them saying to me then, you know, we we probably have identified and recognized somewhere, you know, a, a few thousand viruses at the moment. And there are probably more than a million out there which we we don't know about at the moment and which have the potential to cause problems. So, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, sort of, you know, the, the whole business of deforestation um, and human orangutan conflict, uh, the ongoing sort of problem, it is, a, is a real sort of threat. The more that we encroach into sort of those animals' territories, the more we put in roads, we sort of open it up to poaching, we open it up to the wildlife trade, um, and we expose ourselves um, to, to possible infection, but but also we expose those critically endangered animals, and sometimes in small numbers, you're right, in small sort of pockets of, of forest left, um, they're going to be really sort of susceptible to, to disease, um, it could easily sort of wipe out the Tapanuli orangutan, as you say. You know, they're split into sort of three three groups at the moment, only sort of one of which is possibly sort of viable um, if something is done. So I think silent killer is actually a sort of a good description. We don't, we don't know what's out there. And I think people often tend to forget that. They just seem to sort of, I think a lot of the public would just think, well, we know about diseases and we know what there is out there. Um, but in fact, we don't. So the potential for problems is, is worryingly there, I guess. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Um, before I mean, we've been chatting for a while now, but, and, and I haven't asked you at all about OVADE. And so it seems, and uh, before we let you go, I want to, I, I do want to dig into OVADE and what OVADE is about. So maybe you're, since you're the co-founder, you're the best person to, to, Tell us what Ovate is, so I'll I'll step out of the way and let you describe what Ovate is and what it's trying to do. Uh,
1: so I, I get a, a, a promotional slot for Ovate. This is really good. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, we, I mean, yeah, I, I think sort of when we sort of spoke before this sort of podcast, you sort of uh, in your question, it was like why Ovate, um, and I sort of picked up up on that because it's. It's funnily enough, it's exactly the question that Sarah and I were were asked by the CEO of, uh, of one of the largest orangutan charities at a very outset. And he just asked if we had too much time on our hands or money to waste to be setting up another charity, um, which I think was probably sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek. But in fact, it was neither of, of those, you know, neither of us ever intended to, to run a charity. Um, we loved what we were doing. We were sort of helping the orangutan. We just simply saw a a desperate need that we felt we could fulfill. Uh, And we were extremely driven to, to try and do something to help from a, from a personal point of view. uh, I guess I just wasn't ready for retirement. So, so for me, it was a little bit, I felt a little bit like uh, paying back. Um, and, and certainly I know tell everybody that, that without any doubt working with orangutan for the last 12 years has has probably given me more satisfaction than my previous 30 odd years as a vet. Um, but as you know, Jerry, all the centers in Indonesia are NGOs with no government funding. So the budget's always stretched. And facilities like cages and staff and feed, etc., always tend to take priority over the, over the veterinary budget. So the, the catalyst for setting up OVA came back in 2013 after we'd been working with the Rangutan for, for sort of four or five years. Uh, and it happened when we met a young Indonesian vet called Imam. And, and Sarah and I had been working in Malaysia in a government-run center where it's, although we lack some equipment supplies for the clinic, were are not really a problem, and we were occasionally sent down into Indonesia by the charity that we were working for, uh, and we were shocked and amazed to to see the difference of the the threat to the orangutan in Indonesia from from Malaysia, and also to find how lacking in veterinary equi- equipment and medicine some of the the rescue teams teams were. So, so it, was, it was brought home to us quite vividly in 2013 when we met Imam, And he was a, a young vet in charge of two mobile rescue teams in Kalimantan. Uh, and we were visiting and we asked him what equipment he had and if he could show us his clinic. And we were both completely stunned because he, he sort of wryly smiled at us and just produced a small daypack backpack with a few sundry items in it. Uh, so he was a guy who was rescuing critically endangered orangutans often seriously injured um, and um, and with little more than a first aid kit um, to, to, to his wage was being paid by another charity but he had no equipment he was like a mechanic with no tools um, so he had knowledge but but what practically could he do so it was a, it was a critical eye-opener for us and we immediately committed to try and rectify the situation we felt that we were in a unique position we had some veterinary and nursing training we we had experience of working in an orangutan center. So we started by raising some money amongst friends to, to take a few items of equipment out, but we soon realized that we needed to make things a bit more transparent. Uh, and, and that's really how in 2014, OVE was born. So we felt that by establishing the only sort of specifically veterinary focused charity, we, we could have an impact. And, and the aim was simple. You know, it, we would be a small niche charity, we would try and fulfil the shortfalls of equipment medicines uh, of as many of the vet teams as we could. They'd tell us what they needed urgently and we would try and aim to supply. Um, but we also felt it essential that we should be able to react quickly and decisively when necessary, when things were needed, and and, and wanted to keep overheads minimal. So so keeping the charity sort of small and voluntary run has, has, has actually been a conscious, conscious decision. And I think actually perhaps as help with what success we've had. Certainly, you know, our supporters are able to see us do a fundraise and then, you know, hopefully a month or two later, they can see that equipment being used out in Indonesia. And I think we've, we've, we've had a significant impact. I, I think since 2014, we've supplied about a quarter of a million pounds worth of equipment. Um, but we've also changed slightly. We've, we've expanded our scope to, to try and facilitate some mentoring and some training. Um, and I guess sort of now at this stage, having gained an in-depth understanding of what's needed by working on the ground for sort of over seven years in more than four rescue centers, we're, we're often sort of quite selective and pragmatic in what we do supply. There's, there's no point in installing expensive, sensitive equipment in a, in a poor environment or not providing adequate maintenance or training. So, so we try and make our decisions carefully and we have a network of suppliers and expert trainers now that, that very generously assist us. So we're able to provide some in-situ training at the centres when we supply equipment, um, and we have managed to do some monitoring. Uh, and I think sort of this ongoing training is a really important factor for, for the Indonesian vets. So in 2019, we, we actually launched a scholarship to try and bring some of these orangutan vets from Indonesia back to the UK um, for an exchange of ideas and um, some training and upskilling. Um, so the launch that year was for, for two candidates, Arga and Pandu, and, and they really enjoyed it and it seemed really worthwhile and we got great feedback. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, the pandemic saw us having to postpone this, the scholarship. So uh, we were going to bring four candidates in 2020 but... Unfortunately, we've had to put that on hold, but we are currently in conversation with uh, Liverpool University and Chester Zoo here in the UK to to try and resume it next year. So, so sort of as I say, orangutan veterinary aid sort of sprang really out of out of what we saw as a as a as a necessity um, uh, to to try and help help the vet teams, and hopefully somewhere along the line we've we've managed to to
0: achieve that. Well, there there was a couple it, no i think it's amazing what you're doing and it was it was long needed obviously there was in you know when it came to mountain gorillas there was the gorilla doctors and they've been around for a long time and they've made a huge difference in the survival of that that group of of great apes but there was it seemed some some real gaps in when it came to When I first started uh, traveling to Borneo and filming orangutans, there was certainly some gaps in the uh, veterinarian support that was there. But one of the things that I'm really excited that you're doing is the scholarships. Because one of the things that I consistently bump into when in the field is the fact that these young vets, it's a a huge – I don't think people realize what a huge leap – it is for vets in some of these countries because they're taking care of wildlife isn't seen as a priority. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're going to become a vet, you take care of domestic livestock or, you know, or someone's pets, that's where the money is. Um, so I've had more than one young vet in a center that just said, you know, we really had to kind of go against family wishes go against friends who were just like, why are you doing this? The, the idea that you would actually be interested in saving an orangutan's life versus making money, you know, taking, you know, working for some big livestock organization or something. And it, it seems like with scholarship programs, especially that's one of those, one of those ways in which you can you sort of value added To the experience and the fact if they're getting to come to the UK or wherever to get, you know, um, other experiences when they go back home, that sort of adds value to who they are as a person and what they're doing as a career.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I think it's a really important factor. I I think probably it it needs a combination of sort of in situ training um, and perhaps things like the scholarship Scheme bringing sort of vets across either to the america or to to, to the u k uh you're you're absolutely right Jerry. it, it always surprises me um you if you if certainly here in the u k anyway if you say that you're a wildlife vet um people are firstly amazed and um surprised uh, and very envious because it's sort of like the ultimate job. It's fantastic. Uh, in Indonesia, it's pretty well the opposite. Um, you know, if you manage to qualify as a, as a vet, then you do have the potential to earn money. Uh, if you go to Jakarta or Singapore or somewhere and you, you do cats and dogs. Um, so for your family, it's a, it's a real bonus. So for these guys to, to turn around and say, actually, I'm going to turn my back on that. Uh, I'm just going to uh, go and work in a really remote rescue centre miles away from anywhere uh, for a minimal wage. Um, and it's going to be difficult sort of conditions, but this is what I want to do. That takes a lot of courage. So I think anything that we can do to to help these guys uh, and and I think what also tends to happen is that a lot of these sort of young Indonesian vets make that decision decision when they qualify, naturally enough, they have to decide which direction they're going to go in. Um, So they will enter the centres with with very little practical veterinary experience, Um, you know, in terms of of surgery and medicine. They have to sort of learn on the hoof as they go. Um, So it's really sort of difficult for them. And the opportunities to, to advance are sort of quite limited, so the, so the availability to, you know, of, of some in-situ training or education or certainly the ability to, to perhaps travel outside the country and, and converse with, with other sort of vets, um, learn new techniques, um, is, I think it's vital in maintaining their interest. And I think it's vital in sort of maintaining the whole process of, of orangutan welfare and so on, because these guys can, can go back. Um, and turn up at the centre and say, hey guys, you know, Joe, I've just seen them using this sort of technique. I wonder if we could sort of give that a try. Um, so hopefully it's capacity it's capacity building um, and it's encouraging for these vets. They have something to aim for. They can see that they can actually make progress where perhaps they thought they couldn't. Um, they can acquire new skills. Uh, and then that hopefully also um, keeps the Keeps them working in the in the centres and not sort of abandoning it the life and, and, and going back. So uh, I, I think it is a you know it is a really important part of, of what we do. We we were sort of really encouraged with the response that we we got from from sort of applicants for the scholarship and certainly as I say from Argon Pandu that came on our first scholarship. Um, they both took back ideas. One of the one of the things that I've really sort of liked was. Um, Agar, who was from the BOSS Foundation in uh, in had, had desperately wanted to learn about some dentistry. Uh, and we managed to find him a placement here in the UK with a specialist wildlife dentist. Um, uh, and he admitted that he, he'd learned a lot, but I guess it was about a month after he got back to Indonesia and he just messaged me and he said, you know, we had an orangutan today that we were going to go for release And when we were doing the health check, I looked at his teeth and said, we shouldn't be releasing this orangutan, that tooth needs to be extracted. And he was so proud because he'd actually managed to extract this tooth, which actually was a canine, so all credit to him, because it's one of the most difficult teeth to extract. Um, And I was absolutely delighted because he was a guy saying, well, you know, we would have probably released that orangutan if I hadn't come on the scholarship, if I hadn't learned that sort of dentistry and gone back and said, look, we need to look carefully at this and this is what we could do. Um, It wouldn't have been done. So there was a real positive there. um, And I was really sort of heartened by that and felt, well, actually, perhaps we're we're perhaps doing some good here, both for for the vets themselves and perhaps for, for longer term welfare.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that's another one of those things. I don't think most people would think about is orangutan dentistry. You know, it's like, <laughs> but you know, if if their teeth are infected, um, or especially if they had a broken canine or something, and their teeth are infected, and they end up not being able to eat um, or eat effectively to keep their nutrition levels up, um, it could have devastating impact. You know, we. Um, we've been we've been chatting for nearly an hour and I, there's just a couple more questions i wanted to ask you um one is as as a vet now that's been working for near you know over a decade i guess in that part of the world if there was if there was one ongoing situation you could change that would what would that be i mean what what would you like I mean, you can't. Maybe you can't change everything, but from a veterinary standpoint, what would you like to see change that would really make a difference in the the lives and the survival of great apes there? Or well,
1: I, I guess we we have to be really practical. You know, rather tongue in cheek, I'm sure I would speak for all the rescue vets when I say that what we would all like is actually to be made redundant. You know, we'd like the need to rescue, translate, translocate orangutan just to end. Uh, and for orangutan to live safely and peacefully in their own environment, uh, and no need for us all um, be out of a job. That would be fantastic. But obviously, the reality is that the current situation for orangutan is not going to alter in the immediate future. So, so vets are going to continue to, to face challenges. So, you know, we obviously need to work at the whole sort of conservation issue, you know, for these orangutan. We need to find a better way of uh, of Solving or trying to solve the problem, uh, you know, people have been working hard for the last twenty years, and yet in that last twenty years, you see figures like eighty percent of orangutan habitat having been lost. So you could argue that that that, that as conservationists, you know, we haven't been doing that good a job. Um, but that's that's sort of the bigger picture that that certainly needs to change. And but as I say, that's not going to happen sort of quickly. For, for me as a vet harping back to that sort of last sort of uh, little bit of conversation we had i guess it would be for me for for these rescue vets to be recognized for what they do but also to to have have ongoing support you know without these rescue without these vets working in these rescue centers orangutan are going to die there's no, you know, no doubt about it the keepers are really good but there's only so much that they can do um, so without the vets, it's, it's an impossible task. You're just not going to be able to put animals um, healthily through a rehabilitation process. So, so for me, I think providing support for the vets is achievable. Um, and I, th- I think it's, it can be done. So uh, providing opportunities for them to learn, mentoring, providing sort of facilities and so on so that they're able to use them, I think is important. And I think the other thing which has sort of come to light more sort of recently, I I think is that these vets work in challenging conditions every day. Um, And there's currently a a worldwide discussion about the mental health of veterinary surgeons. Uh, We have one of the highest rates of suicide of of all professions. Um, And and this was emphasised at the recent orangutan veterinary advisory group ovag conference which we sort of attended online um, when many of the indonesian and malaysian vets expressed just how much they were struggling with their jobs uh, with the remoteness being away from their families with the pandemic and with their mental health particularly during this this last year so i think there is something that can be done practically we can find ways of supporting these young vets Um, it seems to be a a real concern for them. And, and I think it's achievable. We are sort of changing that. The, as I say, the Orangutan Vet Advisory Group um, are an Indonesian-driven group which is providing um, a huge amount of, of support and input and education for these vets and, and encouraging them, encouraging them to talk amongst each, each other um, and, to, and to move forward. And for me as a vet, I think that perhaps will bring about the biggest, the biggest change. If these vets are happy and and uh, in in their work and are not having to struggle so much, they're going to do a much better job. Welfare of the orangutan is going to improve. So it, it's it's a slightly sort of um, strange answer, perhaps, Jerry, because it's it's nothing. I think can be done for the orangutan that we are not already trying to do. That maybe that we need to change the way we're doing it and that's perhaps the topic of a, a complete another conversation between ourselves you know maybe we need to to look at you know do we rescue and um, and translocate or do we preserve the forest it's that sort of big debate and and i always consider myself to be a welfareist, so i'm going to be looking for the, the individuals um, and perhaps i'm a conservationist second you know i still like to look at the bigger picture but for me sort of welfare sort of comes first and 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 i think to improve the welfare of the orangutan we need to have a really good sort of solid veterinary team sort of working to help them um so that's something that can be achieved um, and hopefully we're we're moving some way towards that
0: uh, so how um so in helping you achieve that how can people uh help with ovaid
1: well, uh, they they can always give us some money. <laughs>
0: uh, <that's, laughs> There's that. That's, yes, that's, we can certainly do that's that. That's being sort of very flippant.
1: So, uh, but, but but no. It, it, no,
0: but to to find out more, they can go to OVAID.org, yeah, right? If, if they go O-V-A-I-D. to—
1: O-V-A-I-D. Yeah, dot so, so the organisation is orangutan Veterinary Aid, but we're often known as, as OVAID. www.ovaid.org. They'll find all sorts of information there about the work that we do, um, illustrations of, of what we've been able to achieve, um, and also sort of ways that that they can help us. But uh, but one thing I would say, and we always say that when we when we talk to people, is spreading the word is is, is as important as anything. It's spread the the fact that you've learned that something about orangutan, um, and that they are critically endangered and that we need to be working to, to support them. Um, and word of mouth does a huge amount. Um, obviously, you know, if people can support us financially or find some way to do that, that's, that's a huge help. But but very often just spreading the word and making people aware of, of things is, 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 a, is a big part of it. <laughs>
0: Well, Nigel, thank you so much for being on Talking Apes today. I mean, helping spread the word about what's going on with, I love being able to talk to people with different perspectives on. The conservation of great apes. Um, it's one thing to talk, as you said, you're looking at the individual. Uh, your conservation, a second. You know, we've had conservationists on talking about the the situation with with uh, orangutans. So it's nice to have somebody looking at the individual specifically um, and and giving some perspective on that. So um, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate it.
1: It's it's been a real pleasure, Jerry, and uh, I think I, I I get the feeling we could talk for another hour, but you know, that's just going to bore people. So we, we'll we'll save some more for
0: another time. <laughs> uh, we'll save some more, and hopefully, we can have that hour somewhere in uh, in Borneo in the not too distant future. That would be uh, that would be really brilliant. So. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being on. And I, again, I just really appreciate taking the time and, and sort of walking us through some of the stuff that y- you go through. I think people, uh, are going to find it really fascinating, especially, um, if there's some young vets out there or somebody's listening and they know someone who's interested in, in wildlife veterinarian medicine. It's, this is a, it's an interesting time with diseases, zoonotic diseases and the challenges that, that all of these species are facing. It's a, it's an interesting time to become a vet. I think
1: it is. Uh, you know, it's 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 a great job. I don't I don't even consider it a job. I consider it sort of more of a vocation. I, I think i I feel lucky that I've uh, been able to spend my life life doing a, a job in inverted commas that that hasn't really seemed like a job. And certainly working with the orangutan doesn't seem to be too much of a hardship well, for me.
0: Well, thank you. And those aren't inverted commas. Those are uh, those are full on, <laughs> full on. I thank you. I really appreciate it. So, take care, and we'll talk very soon. Okay. Thank you
1: very much, Jerry. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay. Oh, actually, before we go, I want what one question I want to ask you is: What's next? What's next for you?
1: Uh, that's a that's a that's a tricky one. I th- I think probably we're. Concentrating more now on, as I say, sort of providing sort of training and um, and backup for for the vets. You know, our core our core function obviously has always been to to provide the equipment and, um, and medicines that are necessary. But but we've sort of swung a little bit as as we've been able to provide a lot of the essential equipment. Obviously, it needs to be maintained, but but, but a lot of it has been provided, uh, and that will be ongoing. But we're probably moving more towards hopefully being able to provide backup and support to to the vets and and that's sort of been illustrated recently you know we've we've had to change our ideas because of COVID and the way that we work we've not been able to travel out to Indonesia uh, and take the donations that we we normally do we normally travel with about 150 kilos of donations and, um, and and are probably sort of Flagged up in red as we approach the uh, the security scanners at Indonesian airports. I think we probably have got a reputation already, uh, but obviously we've not been able to do that. So we've, we're concentrating more, perhaps, on on mentoring and training. Uh, and interestingly, we've we've we, in partnership with uh, with with Boss Schweiz, Boss Switzerland, we've we've just managed to fund a three month training program, for example, at San Lestari in the, at the Boss Centre there, where we've been able to. Uh, place an experienced vet to undertake I think it was like more than 20 surgeries in orangutan and over 30 surgeries in the sunbears from dentals and ophthalmic surgeries etc and provide in situ training Um, and it was fascinating seeing what sort of happened in the initial sort of first sort of week a lot of the vet team were very reticent to admit that they didn't know things and were sort of very weary and then as they um, as they became sort of happy and comfortable with with Joost, who was who was the vet, who was um, um, doing the training, they suddenly all sort of blossomed. They all sort of wanted to have practically have a go. They were sort of eager to do things, uh, and within a couple of weeks, they were extracting teeth and, and doing a lot of the surgeries themselves. Um, so that was sort of really heartening and, and made us think, well, actually, this is a real practical way of 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 helping the situation there um, and it may be that that's what we need to be concentrating concentrating on it was a three-month project we aren't going to be able to do that all the time uh, but if we could develop more of those um, I think we would be making perhaps a, a slightly different but but as much of an impact as, as just simply providing uh, medicines and equipment so uh, I, I I would like to think that we we can progress from here um, and, and do more of that.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I was just, that was, I was curious as to what's, what's next. It's kind of, uh, it's a question that we've started asking guests just to, you know, see what's on the horizon out there for everybody. And, and this, and you're right. I think the, um, the situation with, especially this pandemic has made people kind of reassess, how they have an impact certainly made us reassess here at globio i mean we're working with our program partners and and trying to figure out how we can have a greater impact when we can't get there because we just in some cases you know we're just shut off from getting on a plane and going there and doing the filming or whatever else we're doing so
1: yeah exactly uh, i i I, I guess it's a it's a positive outcome of the, of the pandemic, perhaps, you know, that we, we've all had to sort of reassess what we're doing and, and, you know, we, we've sort of found that we've still been able to supply some, some things, you know, we've managed to supply the PCR lab at um, Katapang with, with essentials, even during the pandemic, it's been difficult, but we found ways around it. Um, but, but we have had to look at sort of alternatives and, and as I say, like this sort of training program has, has turned up, to be a real sort of positive and, and something that that will certainly continue I, I, I certainly i'm certainly not giving up yet there's there's uh, there's life in the old dog yet i think
0: my special thanks to nigel hicks for sharing his time and his experiences on what it's like to be one of those specialized veterinarians who takes care of wild orangutans in borneo and sumatra You've just been listening to In the Spotlight, a new Talking Apes podcast series available exclusively on our website at TalkingApes.org. That's TalkingApes, one word, dot O-R-G. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas about future In the Spotlight series, you can email us at media at talkingapes.org. I'd like to thank the Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zabon, and our new lead researcher Megan Lewandowski, for their work on the news in the spotlight series. And finally, thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by the growing number of listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation via the link on our new website. And for all those who work tirelessly every day to protect and save great apes and their forest homes, we thank you. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.